we are going to be in Psalm 1, uh, but before we do, we need to pray. And so if you join me, please, please in prayer, uh, we'll bring this uh, uh, to our God and Father. Father, thanks so much. We can be together. Uh, thanks so much, your God that hears us. Uh, Father, we are grateful for uh, what you've done for us and through us. And we uh, continue to pray for those we know and love that uh, are not yours. They are members of our families, those that we love and are close to. And uh, we pray in your mercy and kindness that you would redeem them. We think of Charlie Sargent and Peter and Holly and Randy and Nita. We pray you'd work in their body and heal them. Uh, we think of uh, Shauna Bay. Thanks so much for her. And we pray for her as well. Uh, we ask your blessing now uh, and honor time in your word. Uh, it comes from you, and we are grateful for it. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, Psalm 1. Uh, you'll find that in your bulletin, or you can look in the Bibles and the pews that are in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, uh, please take that one home. It's our gift to you. Uh, if you are looking in the Pew Bible, you will find Psalm 1 on page 448. And so, anyway, if you join me as I read that to us, Psalm, Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, we don't have to look very far to find a politician who has won election to his office by making a campaign promise to bring people together, to be one who unites, one who uh, you know, forges compromises to build consensus and will you know, work together, work across the aisle, if you will, uh, to, to accomplish something. And... To varying degrees, we see that these people have, you know, some success. I mean, there might be gridlock, and we understand that, but, you know, things are getting done. You know, bills are being passed, the government continues to function, and so on and so forth. So there is some success in that. However, when it comes to matters of important things, I say matters of human behavior matters that would determine what is right and what is wrong, there is consensus not being built. In fact, instead of uniting our country and our culture, we probably see a greater polarization at this moment than we've seen in my lifetime for sure, and maybe well beyond that. I don't know. Uh, but that there is great polarization. There is great a great divide from those people on this side of the equation and those people on this side of the equation. And it really is not too surprising because the people on this side of the equation, you know, they take great delight and, and they consider it virtuous 
Uh, they look at diversity, inclusion, relativism, and tolerance as being great virtue, where the Bible doesn't do well with those things. On the other hand, the Bible speaks in terms of absolutes. And one thing the other side over here cannot tolerate are absolutes. But the Bible speaks in absolute. It speaks as if it is absolute truth because it is. And it's not truth if it's not absolute, right? And so you can see you have people over here that everything is relative, we want to build inclusion, and we want to have diversity, and, you know, let's everybody, I'm okay, you're okay kind of thing. And over on this side of the equation, we have what the Bible stands for, and it's absolute. And the Bible is a book of great contrast. It speaks time and time and time again. The Bible says it's not this way, it's this way. There's not a lot of middle ground. You're not going to find a lot of middle ground. Not a, a lot of opportunity to straddle the fence if you're going to believe what the Bible has to say. You know, Jesus said, he was not with me is what? Against me. He didn't say, well, he's not with me. He's kind of straddling the fence. He's got one leg on either side. No, he's not saying that. He's, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're looking for kind of this wishy-washy kind of thing, the Bible's not the book for you. The Bible speaks in absolutes. It speaks in contrast. The book of 1 Peter uses the the apostle peter uses the the word but over 30 times and it almost always is to make a point that something is not this way but this way and for example a passage that you'd be familiar with we we speak it frequently when we're having communion first peter 1:18 it says you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It's not this way, it's this way. And so our Psalm 1 is, is a perfect example of contrast. And so we're going to look at those this morning, we're going to point those out, and so, as we go to Psalm 1, verse 1, it says this. It says, how blessed or happy or joyous, depending on what your version might, might say, how happy the man, how blessed the man, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, this word walks is not what we do when we go from here to Safeway. It's not what we do for get some fresh air and go around the block, you know, kind of keep our cholesterol down, our blood pressure down, all that kind of stuff. No. When the Bible uses the term for walk in this context, what it means is living out. How are you living out your life? So you can say this verse, how blessed is the person, the man, person, who does not live out his life in the counsel of the wicked. Well, living out your life in the counsel of the wicked can be a very subtle situation. It may not grab you and shake you all at once, although we might, we might think that at times. We might think, where did this come from? How did this jump out the page at us? Um, living out your life in the counsel of the wicked can be very subtle. For example, a couple, I'm going to give you a couple examples here that we see. There's this theory of evolution. You know, despite 
the fact that there is how much evidence for the kind of evolution that says there's some matter there and it's not alive or anything like that, that all of a sudden there's some cosmic force that's going on, and shazam, we got life. How much evidence do we have of that? This much. This much. We have zero evidence for that. It simply does not happen. Nothing plus nobody equals everything is not an equation that's going to get you very far. And yet, despite that, I challenge you, if you watch the evening news tonight, listen for it, watch for it, you will hear some reference to evolution as if it were fact. Now, that's okay for these kind of folks over here if that's what they want to do, but we're over here where we think we are. But the problem is, is, is that even in Christian schools of higher education, go to college and university and ask them this question, because we have, before our kids went to school, we've asked them this question. What's your stand on biblical creation? You know, uh, do you look at creation the way the Bible says it? You know, that God created things in six days and things like that. Is that, how do you, what's your position on that? What you're likely to hear in Christian now institutions, forget secular stuff, Christians say, oh, you know, we really don't take positions on secondary issues. Oh, secondary issue? If you can't believe that God created everything, what makes you think that he can redeem you? And so, if we don't get that straight, a lot of other things fall away. But... You and I, it's real easy. We talk in terms of evolution. We can, we can get caught up in that whole thing. And so it's very, very easy to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Okay, another good example that we see. Now, this, is, this we think, kind of came on us all of a sudden, but in reality it didn't. Anyway, it's the issue of same-sex marriage. You know, the Supreme Court made this ruling a few, a few weeks ago. And... But I'll tell you this, we did not lose the battle for same-sex marriage a few weeks ago. We lost it 20-some years ago when we did not take a stand against our government institutions and our companies and business who gave spousal benefits to cohabitating heterosexual couples. That is where we lost the battle for same-sex marriage, right there. It wasn't, th wasn't six weeks ago. It was 20-some years ago we lost it when we did not stand for that. But it seems like it took us by storm, huh? Because it's just like, whoa, a few years ago you'd have never heard of this kind of thing. And all of a sudden now, same-sex marriage is legal all over our country. Well, the disturbing thing is, is that people who would, who would claim the name of Christ... You know what? What was her response to this ruling the other day? I don't, I don't have a Facebook page. I'm not on Facebook, but my wife is, my kids are, and it was amazing in a bad way to see the kind of responses that came on Facebook after the Supreme Court's decision. We had, oh, here's this post. Wow, love wins, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And it's got the little rainbow thing going on over there in the corner. No, love did not win, sin won. Should not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked are telling us, oh, it's no big deal. What's our Bible say? 
Sorry, it's all fornication. Any kind of sexual activity from people who aren't married, I'm sorry, fornication's wrong. They're on this side, we're on this side. Love did not win, sin won. It's subtle. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Lastly, here's, this, here's a real subtle one you may not even appreciate as an example of walking in the counsel of the wicked. When you listen to your local weather forecast tonight and the weatherman comes on and he makes some comment like, Mother Nature gave us a wonderful day today. It was so nice. And you go on and all the temperature and this, that, and the other thing. Wait a minute. Mother Nature, who is this? Who is this individual? Pagan God. God gave us a beautiful day today. It wasn't Mother Nature. We are lifting up our praise to a pagan god when we use the term Mother Nature. This, this, this does not exist. Mother Nature did this. Mother Nature did that. No, I'm sorry. God did it. If you had a good day, thank God. If you had a bad day, say, God, please give me a better day tomorrow. But God is responsible for weather. No question about it. There is no such thing as Mother Nature. Strike that term from your vocabulary. You are lifting up your praise to a pagan god. Very subtle. You don't think about it. I don't think about it. I get caught using it some of the time. It's not right. Get it out of there. It's not good. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. We, we have a, a culture war going on. And it's, it's, here's what's happening. You know, it's trying to mold us. Our culture is trying to mold us and shape us into a certain pattern. And rather than us molding and shaping the culture, we are being shaped. And it's a battle. And the challenge that we have to wrestle with is we have to correctly identify our enemy. And for me, I have a hard time with this. Because when our politicians, our Supreme Court justices come and do some of these things, it makes me angry. And I get angry at them. And then I have to pinch myself, and I said, wait a minute, what's my Bible tell me? You know, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So guess what? Our president, our Supreme Court, justices, our legislatures and stuff, they're not, they're, they are mere pawns in Satan's scheme. The, the battle is up above. The battle is a spiritual battle that we mostly don't see, but what we see are the people that it's being played out in. And so we want to get mad at those people, and we can do everything, and we should be angry at what they stand for, and that's fine. We need to be praying for the people. I find that hard to do. You know, I find, that's difficult. That's something I have to work on, because this whole thing, you know, it agitates me. And so... But we have to stand firm. The Bible in Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the spiritual battle that we're in. It says stand firm. Hold your ground. Don't give in to the pressures of the culture that tell you things are a certain way. Use your God-given sense and stand your ground. Stand your ground. And it goes on. It says, you do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. Now, 
culture can try to mold and shape us in a certain way. And we talked about that a little bit. But, you know, that's kind of a, it can kind of be a passive thing. It's happening kind of to us, if that makes sense. We're just kind of being in here, and it's happening to us. This next one is proactive on our part. It says, stand in the path of sinners. Now, we take it another step. We are molded and shaped by our culture, and now we pursue and look out people that are in that camp. And so if if my way home from work is going this way, I'm going to go over this way so I can hang out Right? I want to hang out and I want affirmation from people who hold these views. I want to, I want to be in the path. I want to be in the, I want to be with them. I want to be with people that have this kind of philosophy and view of morality and right and wrong. Don't do it. Great philosopher Johnny Gomes says, if you play with the pigs, you're going to get dirty. Don't do it. Do not, do not Stand in the path of sinners. You know, now, here's the thing we have to understand about this. It doesn't mean we don't associate with non-believers. That is not what this means. We have to associate with them. We have to build our relationships with them so that we can be salt and light to them. They have to see that we love them and care about them. Remember, they are pawns in this as well. They're not the problem. Problems elsewhere. And we have to build relationships with the unbeliever. But it's not building relationships with them so they can uh, or we can be affirmed by them in their philosophy. We have to build a relationship with them and let them see that we love them so that we can share the love of Christ with them. You know, Dan nicely would tell you, you have to earn the right to share the gospel with somebody. There's not many. How many are? How many Billy Grahams are in this room? Not here. Not here. And so people aren't going to come and see. If I hold, if I hold some kind of meeting, you know, who's going to show up to hear me? My family, maybe, because you know they go, they're going to get pizza afterwards or something like that. They're not going to come see me. They're not going to come and see you. You have to, we have to earn the right to share the gospel with people. And so you do that by building relationships with them. They have to see that you care. But there's a big difference between building those kind of relationships to show the love of Jesus with them and building those kind of relationships so that they can influence me. Big difference. Don't do it. So, do not... Walk in the counsel of the wicked. Do not stand in the path of sinners. And next he goes, do not sit in the seat of scoffers. Some versions will say mockers. Some versions will say the scornful. You know, we take this progression one step further. First of all, you know, we just kind of absorb the culture. And that affects the way we look at things. Next, we take an active step in trying to establish relationships with people that hold these kind of views. And now, this last one is, we are firmly entrenched in that camp. And so now, we mock and ridicule people of faith. And that is not, it's not hard to find people that do that today, is it? You know, you can read even our local newspaper, some of the 
people that write editorials, it's like, huh, I can see what you think of Christians. You know, if you are on the Internet and you look at Internet news sites like Yahoo News, you know, you'll probably you'll see a little bunch of little articles there written by maybe Huffington Post or Salon or one of those. At any rate, they... They are adamantly opposed, and you know, and amazingly so, toward anything of Christ. Now, we all know unbelievers that will take this kind of position. They'll say, "Oh, you're you're Christian? Man, that's okay. If you know, I don't buy into that stuff. I really, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't resonate with me. But if it's good for you, oh, fine, go ahead. You know, it's it's okay. It's live and let live." That's not what these people are talking about. It's not live and let live with these people. They are scorning, they are ridiculing, and they are mocking people of faith. Now, here's the problem, is I was that person. When I went to Arizona State University as a student, this was well before I became a believer, there were a group on campus called Campus Crusade for Christ. They're still on our campuses, I'm pretty sure. And we knew them as the Jesus freaks. And among this little group, you know, the that I hung out with, we mocked them and we ridiculed them. We didn't have courage enough to do it to their face. We did it behind their back, you know. But that was me. That was me a long time ago. Maybe it was you a long time ago, too. God changed me. God rescued me. He redeemed me. It's all different now. But that was me. And we're going to find a lot of those. Don't go there. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Do not stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. It's not a good thing to do. Don't do it. Well, here's the contrast. Here's the first contrast. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law he meditates day and night. Instead of walking, standing, or sitting in affirmation of a culture that's gone completely haywire, what? We need to be in the Word. He says he delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Well, I, I would say that, you know, in order to, how would you say, delight in something, to have fondness for something, you have to be familiar with it. How can you not? You know, it's like, you know, teenage college kids, you know, and there's a, a cute girl over there, and the guy, guy sees her, and but he's too, he's too timid, too shy to go up to her and talk to her, and all she will remain is a cute girl over on that side of the room. Now, the other student, not me, the other student says, that's a cute girl over there. I'm going to go talk to her. And he goes and talks to her, and lo and behold, they're talking for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, an hour. And it seems like they have everything in common. Guess what? He becomes fond of her. How did he do that? He didn't do it by standing on the other side of the room. He went and became familiar with her, got to know her, and found out they had much in common or whatever. The same would be true with God's Word. How in the world can you become fond of it? How can you delight in it if you don't know it? You know, I got challenged probably about 10 years ago now. Our son Ted 
was reading through the Bible in a year, and he was there's thousands of different formulas probably out there to read through your Bible. He was using the one in the back of the Ryrie Study Bible, and it walks you through. You read this verse today, and so on and so forth. The next one, you know, and after, in a year's time, you're going to read through the Bible. And I thought, you know. I've read through the Bible, but it's never been a systematic approach. It's never that I kind of started and just worked my way through it. I, it was over here, and then it was over there, and things like that. So I, you know, this is a good thing. I need to do this. And so I've done it pretty much ever since. And, you know, it is amazing to me, in not such a good way, for people who profess to be Christians, they say, I believe the Bible. I believe it's true from Genesis to Revelation. They never read it from Genesis to Revelation. How can they say they know it and believe it when they have never read it? You know, you've got to be familiar with it to be fond of it. So, there's, there should be a disciplined, systematic approach to reading God's Word, to develop a familiarity with it so you can delight in it and be fond of it. Now, when we were in Houston, I couldn't read. My eyes were still had not healed enough from my injury, and so, you know, what can I do? Can't really read. So, but I found out that if you go on the internet and go to Our Daily Bread, it's odb.org, you can click on that and you'll get the devotional that's in those little booklets out in our foyer that you maybe take at home, you know, and it'll have the devotion there. But guess what? There's an icon with a little speaker on it, and you click on it and you can listen to it. Good, I can do that. I can listen to it. Also, it has a pattern for, read, or for reading or listening, in this case, through the Bible in a year. So you click on the icon of those scriptures, then here comes the speaker thing coming up. You can listen to it. Now, that can be very helpful for people somewhat like me. How many of you have been reading something, and maybe for five or ten minutes, and then you go, what did I just read? You know, our mind wanders and gets off in left field. Probably all of us have done that at one time or another. And so for some people, to listen to it is a better approach. It's easier to focus when somebody else is reading it to you. Perhaps. You know, everybody's different. Now, the one guaranteed way to where you will not lose focus as you're reading through God's Word is to read it out loud. Now, don't worry. The people in your house might think you're a little weird, but it's okay. You can, you can read it out loud, and I guarantee you will, you will keep focus. You know, one way or another, if you listen to, to KNIS as Tom Hess reads through the Bible, you know, it's at 9 o'clock in the morning, 6 o'clock in the evening, and then 2 in the morning, I think it is. That 2 o'clock in the morning one I haven't, I haven't listened to yet. But you can listen to it for an hour, and I think if you listen, actually, if you listen to, the, to Tom Hess, Every day, every four months, you will go through the Bible. Now, my dear friend William Plants made a habit of going through the Bible at least six times a year. Did he delight in, in the Word of God? Yeah. You've got to be familiar with it to be fond of it. And so I challenge you to discipline yourself to do that. And trust me, you will you will come find you will delight in it, and then you will find what he said. He meditates upon it day and night. What our passage says. In other words, throughout your day, if you're in God's Word on a consistent basis, it'll take you about 15 minutes a day to read through it in a year. Just so you know what you'd be 
looking at. 15 minutes a day, and you can read through your Bible in a year. Okay, if you're doing this, guess what? As you're going through your day, situations will come up, and you'll say, Oh, yeah, I was just reading about that this morning. It'll come to your mind. You will meditate on it. You'll find that to be true. So, and it goes on in verse 3. Here's the one that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. Verse 3 says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Well, I know what trees without water look like. i got a lot of them out there. And some of them, if they're not dying, they're, they're well on their way, right? They don't look too good. But there are trees in our valley that are firmly planted by water, and they are prospering. Um, here, just you know, a few days ago, had the opportunity to go out to Rick and Katie Bassam's. And so I'd not been in their backyard for a long time. And I walk back there, and I go, whoa. You know, this is like a rainforest back here. I mean, it is beautiful. It, I mean, all the, the trees and shrubs and whatnot are just luxuriant. They are doing so well. Everything is good. And I'm not smart enough to know what every, every tree or every shrub is. I'm not familiar with that. My sister is a landscape architect. She could go and she could tell you everything and all the way down. I can't do that. But now I'll say this. If any of those trees were fruit trees and they happened to be able to make it through the gauntlet of frost in April and May in Nevada, I'll guarantee you they would yield a lot of fruit, a lot of fruit. You know, uh, Val and and my sister-in-law Debbie and my mother-in-law Betty and my Aunt Susie, they're going to canned peaches. And so they brought some peaches up from California. I think these peaches were just off of one tree, I'm pretty sure. And they canned, what, 60, 70 quarts? Wow. One tree. Amazing. And if you haven't, if you haven't had home canned peaches, nice ripe peaches that were canned, yeah, it's good. It's really good. It's like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. You know, and of course it's metaphoric. They're talking, this is an example, you know. You're not going to see a, you know, a peach grow off my ear or something, anything like that. No, it's, it's talking about our lives. It's talking about our lives will yield fruit. And it says, in whatever they do, they will prosper. Now, what they're not talking about is guaranteed financial prosperity. It's not the issue. Not talking about Creeflow Dollar in his $65 million Gulfstream jet that he's going to fly around. It's not talking about Joel Osteen and your best life now. We're not talking about that. It's not financial prosperity that we're guaranteed. Now, some will be financial, financially prosperous. Not a thing wrong with that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about prosperity in more Important, I say, long-term things. And this is what we're promised. Now, the key thing for us to understand is one little phrase in this passage. And it says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its what? Season. In its season. That is so important. That might mean today. It might mean next week. It might mean five years from now. You know, 
if we if if we are you know fond of God's word and we're delighting in it we'll, there's a certain amount of fruit I'm I will guarantee you you will see in your life now for a certain amount but in a greater sense I'm not guaranteeing anything I'll guarantee that it will happen I just don't know when it might be say next week might be next year you know you and I might not see that fruit in our lifetime we might not we might not see the results of that until we go to the next life. We might not see. It's in its season. It's not guaranteed, not guaranteed to happen right now. I can't tell you when it will, but I, I guarantee. I just don't, you know, it will happen. I just don't know when. So that's important. And then verse 4, here's another contrast. It says, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. The wicked simply do not prosper in, in, the, in the type of prosperity we're talking about. We'll mention that a little bit later. Now, there probably are maybe none of you that have ever harvested grain. I'm going to just assume that. There, there might be somebody, and then that's good. You'll, you'll know a little bit more about what I'm talking about. But in ancient times, you know, they would gather, they'd cut uh, the the grain, put it in shocks, and then they'd bring in, they'd beat out kind of the, the big, real big particles, and then they'd get up on a threshing floor, which was, they always wanted on top of a kind of a hill because there's more wind current up there than there is down in a recess. And then they'd take a fork or whatever, and they'd pitch it up in the air, and the grain is heavier, and so it comes down, and in the meantime, the chaff this supposedly gets blown away. And so that's the way they did it for a long, long time. And then in more modern times, they developed what they called a threshing machine. And some of you may have seen those. And they kind of look like a Jurassic Park kind of, you know, machine kind of dinosaur-looking kind of thing. And you'd bring the grain to the threshing machine, and it would mechanically separate the chaff from the grain kernels, and then they have to have men right there with their burlap sacks, and they'd collect the grain and tie the sacks off and so on and so forth, and that's how they did that. Then in more modern time, they had a, a self-propelled combine, and that, that early one was one that had one guy that drove and another guy that stood on the back and collected the grain. It drove through the fields. Now, this is a big improvement. You didn't have to bring the grain to the threshing machine. It moved along the fields. And the other guy sacked the grain because it came out of the, the spout and you, and you tied the bags off or something like that. And then, of course, we got, in modern days, we have combines that ride better than you're in my car. They're air conditioning and closed cab with a stereo and a cushy seat and stuff like that. I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about the next, the prior generation of combines. And this was the one where I had one guy that drove and the other guy that sacked the grain on the, on the back part of the machine. And barley was the worst. Barley harvest typically came in July, somewhere right in there. Depends on where you were, of course, what your climate was and so on. But anyway, it's going to be summertime. It's going to be hot. And these machines did not have cabs. And so you're out in the sun, and it's hot, and you are sweaty. And particularly the guy, the guy that really had it bad was the guy in the bagger. And that grain is coming off of there. 
and here is all the chaff that the combine header is throwing back, and he's sweaty, and that barley chaff is getting down in his neck, and it's, it's getting down in his back, and in his clothes and everything, and it itches like no other. And the only thing you can think of all day long is when can I get a shower or jump in this river or something and get that miserable stuff off of me. That's a great illustration of what chaff is. The wicked do not prosper, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. It's of chaff is of no use, and it's, it irritates. That's all it does. Therefore, verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. When the wicked pass from this life until the next, they will stand before God in judgment. And the question God will ask that person is not, Oh, did you enjoy hunting and fishing when you were on earth? Nothing wrong with hunting and fishing. Maybe you like motorbikes. Did you did you ride motorbikes a lot when you were you were on Earth? No. He's not going to ask you. Oh, were you a good parent? Not going to even ask you that question. He's going to ask you what you did with Jesus. What was your decision about Jesus? That's the only question that's going to matter at that time. All those other things aren't going to matter at that point in time, and. You know, the answer to that question is going to determine your eternal destiny. Well, you've already determined it before then, but how you answered that question really in your lifetime is going to determine how you spend the rest of eternity. And if you say, you know, I was a great parent, loving husband. I treated my kids good. I was a pillar in the community. You know, I think I deserve to be in heaven because of that. You're not going to pass God's litmus test. If, on the other hand, you say, the only way I can be in heaven is in spite of what I've done, not because of what I've done. The only way I can be in heaven is not based on what I did. It's what Jesus did for me, and I've trusted him. I look to him, and so you don't look at me. If you're judging me, you don't look at me. You look at Jesus because he was perfect. I wasn't, but I trusted him. I believed in him. That's the answer you that's the answer God is looking for. And so the wicked will not pass that test. They wanted nothing to do with God while they were on earth. Why should they want to have anything to do with him while they're passing in eternity? Verse 6, he says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God knows the direction to heaven, and it's straight through Jesus, and it's right over there. So I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but my me. That is the way. That is the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked sends them to an eternity of separation from God and hell. It's plain and simple. This is not complicated, as the commercial says. It is not complicated. It is very simple. Over here or over here? It's very, there, there's no middle ground. There's not going to be this relativism, well, let's be inclusive and all this. It's not going to happen. It'd be very easy to determine that. So, as we close, question is this 
how do we define prosperity and what is our plan to achieve it? And I'm going to say that there's two terms, there's two sections to that question. One is long-term and one is near-term. How do we, how do we define somebody who is prosperous? Now, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are really prosperous financially, aren't they? And I try, I do not know their, their, you know, condition, spiritual condition. I have no idea. Maybe they're strong believers. I don't know that. So maybe they not only are financially prosperous, but they're going to be eternally prosperous as well. I don't know. But this is the question. If we define long-term prosperity as something beyond the grave, then we have to have a plan to secure that. And I gave it to you before. It's trust in Jesus. There's only there's no other way. You know, it's interesting as you you talk about talk about prosperity and and so on long term. And Jesus said this, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will man give in exchange for his soul? And that's Mark eight thirty six. <laughs> Thinking about that and I was thinking about TV commercials from a trial lawyer that you've probably seen. This is Jesse Coulter, who's an attorney. I, I don't think you really want to probably have anything to do with the guy, but he makes a good point. He says, what's your freedom worth? You've seen that. You've seen those commercials. What's your freedom worth? And Jesus is saying, what's your soul worth? There's only one way to secure your soul, and that's through Jesus. It's not through good works. It's not through any of these other things. It's in spite of what we've done, not because of what we've done. It's of what Jesus did for us, not what we do ourselves. It's by grace and mercy. That's the only way we can be there. That's, that's our path. That's our chart to long-term prosperity. In fact, eternal prosperity. Now, short-term, what does that look like? Well, there is... I want to just give an example, and there's going to be many of them, and there are probably people that you know would say, yeah, that's really a prosperous person there. I, I wish I was like that. The one person I'm going to use is a, a dear friend of ours who passed away this last winter as Miss Bev Botter, and she was 92 when she passed away. And she was a dear, sweet lady, I, I, I'm telling you. And she made a big impact in a lot of people's life. If you were involved with CEF, for any length of time, you knew Miss Bev. And she had a big impact on my wife Val and on Jennifer O'Brien and I don't know how many other ladies. Miss Bev made a big impact. And so they had the they had the service at Rock of Ages Baptist Church and Darren Robinson who doesn't pastor anymore. He's at he's at a church in Carson City. He officiated at the at the memorial and and he said, he posed the question, he says, how will you be remembered? And how do you want to be remembered? And he goes on to tell about how Miss Bev had influenced him and how Miss Bev had such a sensitive spirit. And so she just seemed, it was just like ESP, seemed to know when people needed encouragement. And I can tell personally, for me, 15 years or so ago, I can't remember the exact time, I was going through a tough time. I didn't think really anybody really knew about it. I mean, I'm just kind of discouraged and so on and so forth. Lo and behold, here in the mail comes a little card from Miss Bev. 
And it's a very encouraging note that she had written to me. At any rate, at the memorial service, Darren Robinson, great preacher. If I was a good preacher, I'd look like him. Um, just did a great job. He really did. And one after he called for people to, 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 you know, to just say a few things about how Bev had influenced her life, one person after the other got up, got up, got up, and telling all these marvelous things. And I'm saying to myself, that is a prosperous life. Miss Bev financially wasn't prosperous so far as I know, but she delighted, delighted in the Word of God and meditated upon it day and night. She was a prosperous person. So, point being, for us, wherever God has put you, He's put you in such a place so that you can be an encouragement. You can be a conduit for Jesus' love to those around you. It's not... It's, it's not an accident that you are where you are. And those people in your life, you have that great opportunity. And so pray to God that you would develop a sensitive spirit so that you can know when it's time to encourage someone, to be light to someone, to, be that, to build that relationship so that God will give you that opportunity to share, the, to share his word of salvation. You know, Paul talked about that in, in Colossians chapter 4. That God opened up an opportunity for the Word. Pray that He would do that. You know, and judge prosperity, short-term prosperity by people's lives like Miss Bell. And she had long-term prosperity, too. She's doing real great right now. She's doing, we're going to miss her. But Miss Bev is doing just fine right now. She has long-term prosperity. So, don't walk. Counsel the wicked, don't stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but your delights in the law of the Lord. Become familiar with it. And I guarantee you that it will, you will become fond of it. You will. So, anyway, let's close and join in prayer. Father, thanks so much. You can bring us to your word today. Thanks so much for the truth that in us. Thanks that we can depend on that. Uh, while our culture is going many different directions, uh, seemingly all at once maybe, uh, we can have confidence in your word. Uh, it is true, and we are grateful for it. Thanks for the hope of redemption through Jesus. And uh, just thanks for the lives of those that have been an encouragement to us. We pray that we would be the same in many others. And just thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.